Uh, it's a real delight now to turn to the Word of God and particularly to come to this book of Second Peter. I have been anticipating this book for a number of months now and uh, am finding it already is something that my own heart and my own Christian walk has needed. And uh, Peter is a, a great book, and a, he, he writes to a group of Christians who are in so much need of some encouragement. And uh, part of how he begins this book is by getting us all on the same page. We understand that uh, turn of a phrase as well, that we need to get on the same page by what we mean when we say that is we need to think alike, like, or we need to see things from the same perspective, or we need to talk about the same things. And that can also be very true of the gospel. Sometimes we need to get on the same page with the gospel. There are a lot of variants of the gospel. You can go to the book of Galatians, for instance, and find Paul speaking to the Christians there and say he's so surprised how quickly they are turning to a different gospel. And so we have to get on the same page about the gospel. And that is what one of the, one of the main themes of Second Peter is, is bringing us together uh, 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 to, to believe and to understand the same gospel. It's a wonderful book. It's a short book. It's divided up into, I see, basically three general sections, and they do happen to actually follow the chapter divisions that are there. In the first chapter, chapter 1, Peter really wants to simply set the record straight about faith, about the faith, or about saving faith that we experience personally when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to draw our attention to some of the core truths about the gospel. And then you come to the second section, which, oddly enough, begins in chapter 2. And it's a significant section, and it's one that we really have to work to wrap our heads around. Because what he's saying in that particular chapter in this section, that not only do the people of God face difficult things, but sometimes those difficult realities come from people within or among us. And they bring challenges to our faith or challenges to the gospel that we believe. And so what he wants us to understand is that, that not everyone who calls themselves part of us is actually with us or for us. And then we come to the third section of Second Peter, which is chapter 3. And we might call this the heart of the last days, if we can put it that way. It's the main truth about the church age next to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the return of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is coming again. And it's the most significant event after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the most significant event of these last days in which we live. And that day and our response to that day impacts everything that we do. The coming of the Lord is going to happen sometime in the future. It may happen this afternoon, it may happen at the end of this month or this year, but it is going to happen in someday future. But the fact that it is a future event does not mean that it doesn't have a significant impact on our day-to-day -day lives. And so Peter is going to talk about the realities around the second coming of Christ, why people try to undermine it, uh, to remind us of its certainty, and then also to encourage us how we ought to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Paul, Peter writes to them and he says uh, in, in uh, chapter 3 there, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. We have 1 Peter and we have 2 Peter. And in both of them, he is wanting to stir up their minds by way of reminder 
that they should remember the predictions of the prophets, which would be the Old Testament prophets, and the commandments of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the apostles. In other words, he wants us to remember the word of God. He wants us to remember the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, which have been contained and written for us by the apostles who walked with Jesus, who heard him teach them. And then he says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own desires. So Peter wants to bring us together, so to speak, again. He wants to solidify us in the same understanding of the gospel that we have. He wants to prepare us for the realities that we will struggle along the way as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to a group of struggling Christians. He's writing to a struggling church. He's writing to believers that are scattered in various places around the known world right then. And he's writing to them specifically about what they are about to face. And what they are facing is that there are false teachers among them. That, 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 and he says to them, okay, you need to dig down in your lives and in your faith and in your understanding. You need to dig down in the scriptures. You need to recall the scriptures. You need to recall the word of God. You need to understand your foundation. You need to be certain about what it is we've taught you. You need to be certain about what you believe. You need to be certain about your standing before God. And so Peter wants to bring us back to a sort of the simple, basic truths of the gospel. And he does it in a brilliant way in the first few verses of this. And we're only going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. But Peter uses these uh, introductory words to, to in, in such a few phrases, to show us what are some of the core truths of the gospel. The first thing that Peter drills in on or that that he writes about is the fact that as Christians, we need to share the same identity. This is really an important thing for us to wrap our our heads around because one of the things at the center of the gospel in the Christian faith is an identity. It's understanding that identity that changes everything in our worlds and in our lives. And the first few letters of, or the first few words of this gospel of 2 Peter speak to issues of identity. Peter sort of throws away some words, or not throws away, but, but, but reminds us of his own physical identity, his horizontal identity. But then he, he makes a comment about his vertical identity or his spiritual identity. And I don't know if you ever thought about that much in your life. If you've ever thought about what gives you identity, what shapes your life, what is it that that forms you, that gives you meaning, that gives you purpose, that gives you direction in your life? Because your identity shapes your actions. It shapes your behavior. It shapes your understanding of your place in this world. It gives stability to your life. And so the very first words of this book tell us something about identity. Simon Peter. It's not by accident that he identifies himself there. We know exactly who this man is. He is the one who Jesus called the rock. He is the one who denied Jesus three times. He is the one who walked on the water with Jesus. 
He is one of the 12 disciples that walked with Jesus. This is his physical identity, so to speak, his horizontal identity. But then he tells us something really, really important. He tells us that he is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, his life is wrapped up in another person. His life finds meaning and direction and purpose in another person. And that person is Jesus Christ. That relationship with Jesus determines the contours of of his life. Somebody outside of himself controls him and directs him. Somebody else determines his coming and his going. Somebody other than him gives meaning and purpose to his life. And that someone is Jesus Christ. So right here, at the beginning of the letter, as he begins this note to these scattered Christians, he's telling them something about the Christian faith, something foundational about it, something that is true of every single Christian, something that defines every one of us. We are in Christ. We belong to Christ, that our identity is in Christ. Our purpose and our meaning in life is found in our relationship with him. The apostle Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And that the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Loved ones, I think there are few things more relevant to Christian living than understanding your relationship to Jesus Christ. And notice it's Jesus Christ. It's the one who walked on this earth with us. It's the one who shared the same breath that we share. But it's also the Messiah, the one God sent into the world, the Son of God. And Peter first begins by acknowledging that he was a slave of Jesus. Now, if that doesn't give you meaning or purpose in life, then, then few things will. And the reality is, is this is not only Peter's identity, but it's the identity of every single Christian, of every single man and woman, boy and girl, who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. We share this identity. I know we rail against it. Words like servant and slave, they, 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 they cause us to just to sometimes react and react very strongly. Some texts or, or translations say bond servant, but it's true, loved ones. This is what we are. In reality, every one of us is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our identity. And if I'm going to be a slave, and and I know we rail against that, but I'm going to be a slave, I would rather be a slave or a servant of Jesus than anyone else or anything else. Because as the old song used to have the line in, you've got to serve somebody. I would rather serve Jesus than anything and anyone else in this whole world. I would rather be a slave of the one who created me who knows me inside and out, who knows the purpose of my life, who knows why he made me, than be a slave of something or someone else who knows nothing about me and cares very little for me. William Barclay makes these comments about this word 
which is variously translated slave or certain. And I've summarized what he says, but he says, to call a Christian a slave or a servant of God means that one is inalienably possessed by God. The Christian inalienably belongs to God. That's identity. I belong to God. Secondly, it says it means one is unqualifiably at the disposal of God. The Christian is the one who has no rights of his own, for all his rights have been surrendered to God. In any situation, the Christian has but one question to ask. Lord, what will you have me to do? The command of God is one's only law. And finally, he said, it means that one must be constantly in the service of God. All one's time belongs to God. You see, loved ones, how Peter already is just reminding us that our whole lives are wrapped up in relationship to Jesus Christ. And all of our meaning and purpose in life flows out of that identity in Christ. But Peter also makes another comment about his unique identity. It's something that isn't shared. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. One of only 12. One who was with Jesus at his baptism. Who walked with him throughout his life. One who was commissioned and filled with the Holy Spirit to remind us of the things Jesus said. One who had witnessed his resurrection and his ascension 40 days later. We are not apostles. But we do each have a unique role to play in the kingdom of God. Each one of us has has a gift that God has given us. Each one of us has a purpose that God has given us that flows out of our serving him that is unique to each one of us, which gives us our identity and our purpose and our meaning in life. Loved ones, this is a reminder right away again in 1 Peter, where do you find your identity? Where do you find meaning and purpose in life? We only find it in relationship to Jesus Christ. The second thing that Peter then tells us that we share together is the same faith. He continues with some pretty significant words there. He says, first of all, we have obtained a faith. That is, we've received it. We've not bought it. We've not inherited it. We've received it as a gift. It's a word that can be found in the word of world of politics and was used of a, an appointed government official who, who sometimes would receive that appointment by a lot, by the casting of a lot. It was something, though, they had received not through any effort or work of their own. And so we have been given a faith. And you say, well, what's Peter referring to when he talks about this faith we've received a faith? There's some that that want to put the emphasis on we've received an objective faith. We've received a body of truth. Um, Second Peter is similar to Jude, and in Jude chapter 1 verse 3, um, Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith. It's an objective body of truth. It's doctrines that we can fight for and that we can defend and that we can understand. But there's also a subjective faith. There's putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's leaning the whole weight of all that we are into trusting the promises in the word of God and receiving the gift of God by faith. As I work through this, that's the emphasis that I think Peter is saying here, is you've received a subjective faith. You've You've received the gift of saving faith the same way that we have. 
And we are commended or even commanded to believe, but it's God who enables us to believe. Because in one place, Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved by faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. And what is more, Peter says there's, there's not levels or standards of faith. He says you have received the same faith or obtained the same faith as we have. It's equal to ours. It's as precious as ours. I think this is so important now, being like 2,000 years from the day when Christ was on earth and the apostles first walked with him. Do you think it is reasonable for people who experienced something 2,000 years ago, to have that be relevant for you and I in the day and age in which we live? In other words, do you think it's reasonable for us to to expect the same kind of experience that Peter and the first disciples experienced 2,000 years ago? Is the gospel changed in any way? Has faith changed in any way? Peter says, absolutely not. The faith that we received, the salvation that we received as we put our faith in Jesus Christ is the exact same gift that you receive when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no difference between what Peter experienced and what you and I experience today. And not only that, do you see what he's saying? There's not levels of faith. There's not super Christians and then super Christians and then ordinary Christians and bottom line Christians. We all come to faith in the exact same way. And we all receive the exact same gift. And it's all received on the exact same terms. It's this same faith that unites us as a Christian. There's only one faith, a gospel reality, a faith that is received as a gift. And you notice then what he says, and this is so important about the faith. How we have received this faith. He says we've received it through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what makes me lean towards the subjective view of faith here. See, the only way to be accepted by God is to be perfect. Is to be blameless, not only in, in, in morality, but in character, to have no blemishes, to have no spots on us, not having a single moral black spot or blemish, not having a single character flaw. Can we ever achieve that on our own? Can anyone ever achieve that? Paul sa- or Peter says the answer is absolutely not. We receive faith by the righteousness of Christ that is accredited to our lives. It's a gift that is given to us. The the spotless perfection, the moral perfection, the perfect character of Jesus Christ. God takes his moral perfection, his perfect obedience, his, his complete love for the Father. He takes that from Jesus Christ and he places it upon us as we put our trust in him and we are made perfect. He imputes the righteousness of Christ. He credits the righteousness of Christ to us. Isaiah, 800 years before Christ came, says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. You see, what Peter is reminding them of is that this faith that they share together, this saving faith is available because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are granted eternal life. The the gospel is this great message of hope that our imperfections and our flaws and the reason why God is at enmity with us or we are at enmity with God has been taken away because the righteousness of Christ has been provided for us. Do you see how this is foundational to the Christian faith? You see, Peter is laying the groundwork for us as he, as he moves towards then talking about false teachers that arise within the church and what they try and do and how they subvert us. And Peter is saying here, he's, he's laying this foundation, he's reminding us of it once, a war, once again, that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. You see what he's talking about here? And it's, he's talking about justification. He's talking about how are we made right with God? Well, we are made right with God by the gift of faith that he gives us as we put our trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been given for us. Paul in Romans says, Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we have peace with God is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we have the the same identity. We are in Christ. We are servants of Jesus Christ. We have the same faith. It is a gift of faith that we receive by the righteousness of Jesus Christ being given to us or placed in us or credited to us. And then we have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. This week, if you have time to read Peter, and if if you have seven minutes, you have time to read 2 Peter. You can read it every day. But if you will read 2 Peter this day, underline or make note of all the references to Jesus Christ. You will find that Jesus Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ is at the heart of what Peter is wanting to say. It's not enough to talk about God. You've got to get to Jesus Christ. It's by faith in him that we are saved. It's by the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us that we are able to enter into a right relationship with God. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Loved ones, you have to get to Jesus Christ. That's absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. Already, Peter has told us that our identity is bound up in Christ. He is a servant of and an apostle of Jesus Christ. But notice what he says there also then next. We've are, we have ob- obtained a faith by the righteousness, notice this, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Think that through for a moment. That is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is God. We receive the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in Titus when he says, the blessed hope of the church, we are waiting the blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is foundational for faith, that you believe and understand that Jesus is God, but he is also distinct from God. 
It's not the same person that, that is revealed in two sort of separate ways. Jesus is not God the Father. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they are distinct. There's one God, but there's three persons within the Godhead. And Peter will distinguish between them at the end of chapter 1 when he talks about the transfiguration and when God spoke about his son and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ is separate from God the Father. But there's more. He tells, this tells us something about the person of Jesus Christ. And this is part of the marvel of the Christian faith and salvation. He, he calls him Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is a reference to his human nature, his humanity. The fact that he walked on this earth with us. The, the fact that he had flesh and blood like you and I have. He was like us in every way except without sin. But he's also the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one God sent into the world. And those two natures are contained in the one person. And that's what we believe as Christians. That's part of the gospel. Those are necessary for salvation. It's necessary that Jesus was fully human. And it's also necessary that Christ was fully God so that our salvation would be possible. But there's more. Peter reminds us of his work and our need of our relationship when he calls him Jesus Christ, our what? Our Savior. You see, this opens up a whole world of self-understanding and of understanding of who Jesus is and why he came into this world. Do you need a Savior? Why? What do you need saving from? See, this is getting to the heart of the gospel. If you don't think you need a Savior, and if you don't think you need saving from everything, anything, then you won't look to Jesus for any purpose other than he might have been a good person who walked on this earth. But the scriptures tell us again and again that we have a terminal illness. That, that we are sinners. Every one of us, we're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by act. And that the wages of those sinful acts and that sinful nature, the, 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 the penalty for that is death. And there's not a single human being that can do anything about that for themselves. And as you come to understand your own sinfulness, as you come to understand what an offense it is against God, as you begin to feel the weight of that and bear the guilt of that and feel the shame of that, you're brought to a sense of helplessness. You're, you're at a loss. And all of a sudden you start thinking, well, I need help. I need a way out. I need something or somebody to deliver me from this sentence of death that I'm under. And that's why this gospel is such a wonderful thing because Jesus Christ is our Savior. Jesus Christ is the one that gives us hope. Jesus Christ is the one that pays the penalty of our sin. Jesus Christ is the one that bears the curse of the law. Jesus Christ is the one that takes our guilt and our shame in himself. Have you experienced this relief? 
Have you found Jesus Christ to be the one to, who saves you from your sin? There is no one else. That's what unites us as Christians. We all worship and, and we all exalt and we all rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We share him together. He is the Savior of all who have put their trust in him. And then there's more. Peter, this is just in the, Peter says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You you see that down in in verse 2, where he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. This is such a critical thing to understand as well, loved ones. And we're, we're jumping around, but what I want us to understand is that, that foundational to the gospel is the same Jesus Christ. And so, he says, Jesus is our Lord. To be a Christian is to bring your life under the lordship of Jesus. It's to bring your life under willing submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. It comes back to this sense of identity that Peter mentions at the first. A servant serves a master. A servant, they they have somebody that's over them. They have a Lord or a master. Every one of us as Christians serves Jesus Christ, the Lord, or our master, you, you can't separate Christian faith from that. You can't say, well, I want to be saved from my sins, but I don't want to serve Jesus. And I wonder sometimes, is there a difference between singing, he is Lord, and declaring that he's my Lord? Absolutely there's a difference. There's an eternal difference. Um, Jesus says this himself. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, what Peter is saying is that not only then is Jesus our Savior, but he's our Lord, and we bring our lives under willing submission to him to walk in his ways, to trust in his promises. Timothy writes, The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We read Psalm 23 often, The Lord is my shepherd. And then we jump to John and we find that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so we bring our lives under the lordship, the shepherding of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, these are truths about the gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is distinct from God the Father. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. At the center of the gospel, at the center of our faith is a person. Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. The final thing that Peter hints at, and we'll see a lot of this throughout the rest of this short little letter, is that we are to share the same growing faith. The gospel has to make a difference in our lives. It has to change us. It's got to 
it's got to impact my moment-by-moment day-to-day living. It's got to change the, my marriage. It's got to change my parenting. It's got to change how I live in, as a widow or a widower. It's got to change me as a business person. It's got to change me as a student. It's got to have a, 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 an ongoing impact in my life. And you come to verse 2 there, and it says, For may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Those two words, grace and peace, get to the substance of the gospel. In a beautiful way, it's always good to be reminded of what grace means. Grace is, is the unmerited favor of God towards sinners. It's not getting what I deserve. Grace will mean little to you if sin means little to you. But the more you understand your sinfulness, the more you understand your heart of rebellion, the more you understand your stubbornness, the more grace will explode in your mind. In the Bible, grace is only understood against the backdrop of sin. And if only we understood the magnitude of our predicament, then we would begin to understand the magnitude of the grace of God that is poured out in our lives. I suspect that people, even Christians, have thought more or worried more about COVID in these past few months then maybe they have about their own sin in all of their lives. And yet sin is exponentially more serious and more threatening to a human being than COVID ever was or will be. COVID may have physical and temporal implications, but sin has both physical, temporal, and eternal ramifications. And we know exactly what they are. What's noteworthy to me, and I'm thankful that we're making progress with vaccinations and whatnot, but what is noteworthy to me, and I've overheard conversations at lunches and whatnot, is is how much talk there is about a vaccination, which may or may not be entirely effective and may have to change either in the short term or the long term. But how little talk there is about a Savior who will completely and permanently eradicate sin from our lives. Not only now, but forevermore. That is grace. That is extraordinary grace. And you see, if we were to think about our sin at all like we think about COVID, if we begin to understand the danger that our sin poses and the destruction that it calls and the consequences that it carries, and when we understood that God had provided a way of salvation or a way to eradicate it or freedom from it as, as a gift and says, here is a gift, Believe in Christ and you will be free from that. I will give you grace. We would just be profoundly impacted by that. And it's not just a a grace for the moment. It's a grace for every day. The the song says it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Grace has brought me safe this far and grace will lead me home. Grace continues to explode in our hearts and lives as we realize more and more and more of God's gracious acting towards us. And then he speaks about peace, peace with God. Does does that mean anything to you? 
Again, it only makes sense against the backdrop of sin. Because our sin puts us at enmity with God. Our sin makes us enemies with God. And when we don't talk about sin or when we don't think about sin, we don't think about the relationship that we have to God or that, what that relationship is like in relationship to God, about his holy wrath and his perfect justice and his, and his, and his, 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 his pure righteousness, all directed towards us because of our sin. But when God through Christ forgives us of our sin, we, all that's gone. All that enmity, all that raft, all that holy justice, all that righteousness that is towards us because of our sin, it's wiped out and we have peace with God. And it's a peace that we grow in and it's a peace that we understand and it's, it's a peace that we flourish in and it's a peace that takes over more and more and more of our lives. And we can live not only at God with peace, but in this world with peace. As Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my Peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them not be afraid. Loved ones, do you have that peace? Do you, do you have that peace with God and do you have that peace of God that sustains us even in this world in which we live? Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is amazing. But again, notice, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand. Do you stand in grace? Do you swim in grace? Is grace the context of your life, of your world, of your thinking? Are you, are you aware moment by moment in your life of how God has been good to you, how God has been so undeservably good to you, and how he promises to continue to be good to you, how he promises to pour out grace in your life? You see, these are not one-time realities either, loved ones, and this is what I'm getting at here by this point. We're not fully there yet in our comprehension of grace and peace. How do we get there? We get there by growing in our knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. You see what he says? May pay, grace and peace be what? Static in your life? May you have a really wonderful understanding of grace and peace as when you were first. No, he says, may they be multiplied to you. How? Through the knowledge of God and our... Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about growth there. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about knowing more and more and more about God and about Jesus Christ. And the more we know about God and about Jesus Christ, the greater will be our comprehension of grace and the greater will be our perception of peace and our greater will be the comprehension of that peace that God gives, that he will never take away it from our life, that he will never back off from offering peace to us, that he will never change the rules of the game. We need to grow in this grace and this peace. So much room for growth. Do you always live in grace? Is your experience in life always one of peace and peace with God? If it's not, then you need to know God more. You need to, you need to get to know more of him. You need to know, you get, you need to get to know him better. See, the gospel writers, and Peter will talk about this, Paul the Apostle says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, counted them as rubbish, in order that I may be gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. In another place, he says, And we all with unveiled faith, face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from God, or from the Lord who is the Spirit. Loved ones, these are the things that make up the foundation of our gospel faith. These are the things that, because they're so foundational, are going to be under attack. They will be under attack just in your own heart to disbelieve what the truths of Scripture is. They will be under attack by those outside of the faith, and, but who are among us who want to undermine the confidence that we have. See, a false gospel cannot, can, can impact your eternity. Because a false gospel tells us lies about God. It tells us lies about ourselves. It tells us lies about Jesus Christ. And as we know, a lot of fake things can cause us a great deal of harm. They can, they can impact your bank account, for instance. If you believe falsely in, in, in some seller of snake oil and you invest with them and they walk away with all your money. Well, we can also be led astray by false teachers and by false teaching. And so we need to understand the truths of our faith. And then we need to grow in them. This is what Peter is saying here. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's more than just accumulating a knowledge of God. It's walking with the person of God. It's about deepening your relationship with God and with Christ. I was reading even this morning, Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed because I know the one whom I believed in. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Do you have fellowship with him? In other words, it's not just facts in your head, but it's a relationship that you enjoy with him. This is what Peter is reminding these, new, these, 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 these scattered believers about. He says, this is the gospel. This is God. This is Jesus Christ. Keep growing. Keep going. Get to know them more and more and your solidity and your peace and the grace that you experience will be multiplied to you. Oh, may God help us in this week to reaffirm our confidence in our gospel foundation and to grow in our love and our knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the gospel, Father. Thank you for reminding me this past week of the gospel. It's amazing, Father, to realize that you have provided for me what I've needed most. That you love me. That you want the best for me. And Father, I pray that if there's any that are listening in today that have never understood the gospel, have never understood the magnitude of their own sin, I pray, Father, that they would come under such deep conviction of their sin that their only hope would be to turn to Jesus Christ, their Savior, and that they too then would experience grace and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.